If you turn with me to the scripture, it's printed in your bulletin. It comes from Psalm chapter 95. I'll be reading from verses 1 to 11. This is known as the Venite. Um, in Latin, it means O come. It's one of the most famous psalms, if not the most famous psalm, next to Psalm 23 uh, throughout history, uh, the history of the Christian church. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. For the past month and a half, we've been sharing about the values that drive Metro Presbyterian Church. And we really just started with preaching through our first core value, which is to be gospel-centered, to be gospel-focused, which is to say that God's grace is not something that we earn or work for or labor for on our end, but it's really grace. We don't deserve it, but it's God reaching, inviting, sacrificing, emptying himself on behalf of our people, his people. And so uh, what it means to be gospel-centered, we believe that taking that truth, that it's grace or by grace that we're saved, planting that truth in our lives deeper and deeper in every facet of life because our lives are multidimensional in every one of our lives, planting it deeper into our view of the city, our view of our vision, it would change the way our church operates. And it results in the advancement of God's kingdom, the healing of communities, the gathering and leading of people into full worship. So this is the last sermon, really, of this series or our pre-launch series because we're going to be coming back and talking about gospel centrality probably for the rest of our uh, time here um, as Metro Presbyterian Church. But uh, we're going to be ending appropriately with a text on worship. What it means to worship. And I mentioned prior to this that, that, uh, that this is the Venite. In Latin, it was called O Come. For centuries, the church had looked at this passage to teach us about what it really means to worship God deeply, what it means to worship him in a soulful way. And so we're going to learn three things today. Uh, what worship is, why we worship, and how we worship. What it is, why we do it, how we do it, or how we can do it better, or how we can do it more freely. Uh, the, first, the first point, what is worship? Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value, ultimate worth to something, that is, to something in a way that it's going to engage your whole person, all of you. That means your mind. That means your emotions. That means your will. It's, a, it's, a, it's ascribing, the act of ascribing ultimate worth, ultimate value, centering your life in a way that's going to change you and engage all of you. And you see here three calls in this passage. You see it in verse 1 and 2, 
Then verse 6 and verse 7. Let me point you to that. Verse 1, he says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Singing, joy. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving, extolling him, music, song. Worship appeals and engages your emotions. Verse uh, verse, uh, 6, it says here, um, Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Worship involves reorienting, centering your will, engaging your will. And lastly, we see uh, in verse 7, at the end of verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Worship engages your mind. When you talk about hearing, you're saying, listen, hear, understand. It's not just a physical hearing, but reason. Understand, listen. So worship engages your emotions. Worship engages your will. Worship engages your whole mind. And when you have your will and your emotions and your mind coming together in a way that um, it really is centered around that which you ascribe ultimate value and worth, you are worshiping. Now, this is very important. Why? Because if you've been through any type of church ritual and you're affirming the doctrines of the church, but you haven't experienced a sense of the beauty of God, if you haven't experienced a sense of the worth of God in your worship, then you're not worshiping. Similarly, if you, if you have bowed down, if you've kneeled before God as Lord, but not in a way that it's engaged your singing, you haven't broken out in song because you haven't reflected and seen the beauty of the glory of God. Or if, you've, if you sing a lot, you're emotive, but you haven't knelt, you haven't bowed, or you haven't reasoned. Or if you've reasoned and you've thought and you've read and you understand, but not in a way that engages your soul in a, in a songful way, then you haven't worshipped. You haven't truly been brought into. And remember, this is an invitation. The psalmist is saying, come, let us bow, let us sing, let us hear. That's what it means to worship. All of your emotions, all of your thinking, all of your will, in this psalm, what you're seeing is the, the psalmist is it, it's revolving around something that the psalmist is doing. These are things that the psalmist is doing. But then, verse 7, he comes, he arrives at verse 7. He says what? For he is our God. That's the ground. That's the reason. For he is our God. We are his people. We are his flock. Verses 3 to 7, what's the psalmist doing? He's taking stock. He's making a list. He's taking stock of all the different things that make God great. The sea is his. He is our maker. He has created the lands. And, and he's taking inventory. He's taking stock. He's taking account of all that makes God great. He is the great king of all gods. He is our Lord. And yet what he's doing is, he says, but we are his flock. He is our shepherd. We are his sheep. In other words, God in his infinite greatness cares. And the psalmist is seeing that. And the psalmist is reflecting on that. That it's one thing to see God as great, but to see that God actually names you as his sheep. It doesn't say here that, you know, God is just Lord. It's not just Lord. In the Muslim faith, you have 400 names for God. Not one of them refer to God as Father. And yet here he says, but yet we are his children. We are his sheep. We are under his care. 
And when you reflect on the beauty of God on one hand and then the love of God on the other hand, and you do that in a cyclical way over and over, revolving around those two truths, that God is great and beautiful, and yet at the same time, God is loving, God is caring, and we are his. He owns us. He breaks you out in song. He sees the beauty of that. He is worshiping. Worship in a way that overwhelms you is the act of reorienting your entire being around something that you say, this is of ultimate value. This is of ultimate worth in my life. Which means that it's going to change you. It's recounting the infinite glory of God, and yet in a way that as you reflect on who he is, as you reflect on God's character, as you reflect on his work, it's engaging all of who you are and then transforming your will. That's worship. That's what it means to worship. The psalmist is saying, God is that pearl of great price. God is the treasure that's hidden in the field. In other words, what the psalmist is saying is, do you see what I behold here? Why doesn't everybody see this? Why doesn't everybody understand what I'm saying? And that's why he says, don't harden your hearts. Do you see what I see here? Do you, hear what I, do you see what I'm beholding? It is incredibly beautiful, and yet it is ours. We are his. And he's recounting that, and in a way that it just blows his mind. It blows, it just blows up in his heart, and it just overwhelms him, and it breaks him out in song. It's shaping his sense of worth. Why? Because rather than putting, placing his worth on other things that are, that are temporary, he's saying, this is infinite. This is everlasting. And that is, it just blows his mind. So worship is to be shaped by that truth. And that's why the Latin word, the, the word worship is really derived from the Latin phrase, worthship meaning that I've placed my worth. It's the act of placing my worth in recounting and reflecting the worth of something just of ultimate value. That's what worthy worship is. Most people, they see God the way the Bible describes how we often see the field or the way we often see the oyster. We don't see the pearl of great price. We don't see the treasure that's hidden beneath. But what this psalmist is calling us to do is he's saying, look what I've discovered. Look what I found. It's glorious. It's beautiful. In the movie Love Actually, there's, it's a series of vignettes of people who have discovered and encountered love. And there's one particular vignette, one particular story of Jamie, who uh, is a divorced man, a writer, who encounters a maid. He falls in love with his maid. And uh, they speak different languages, completely different languages, but he's fallen in love with his maid. And um, it isn't until later on in the movie that he awakens and he realizes. And so what does he do? He starts to engage his entire worth, his personality. He starts to learn her language. And he actually goes out of his way to pursue that which he believes is of ultimate value, ultimate worth in his life. And it's changed him. And it's changed him. Most people in Philadelphia, we just see the maid. We just see the worker. We haven't beheld the treasure that's underneath. We just behold the oyster. Most people in America, you know, 90% of Americans believe that they they believe in God, but not in the way that, that the psalmist is beholding God. The treasure that's hidden in the field, the pearl of great price, they just see the oyster. They have just beheld the field. And so the psalmist is calling us in and saying, look what I found. Look what I see. 
I'm reflecting on the glory and the beauty of God, and it's overwhelming me. And will you come in and join me and let it overwhelm you? Um, it's ascribing ultimate value and worth in a way that transforms our hearts. That's, that's what worship is. Now, why do we worship? Why do we need to worship? And the reason is, is pretty simple. I mean, we can all agree. The reason why it's so important for us to worship God is because if you're not worshiping God, Scripture is clear that you're absolutely, positively worshiping something else. You're, you're placing or ascribing ultimate value or worth in something else. It's in our spiritual DNA. We've been built. The Scripture says that we've been built to worship. We've been built to worship something outside of ourselves. We've been built to desire validation from something other than ourselves. A lot of us say, well, that's not true. I don't really care what other people say about me. Think about it. You need validation in your life. To say that you don't need validation, if you're a writer and no one buys your books, you shouldn't be a writer. If you're a musician and no one cares about your music, then the whole purpose, part of the worth of being a musician is what? So that others can hear. And so, you know, why do we worship? If you're not worshiping God, if you're not placing your worth, the value and ascribing the ultimate value in a way that your sense of worth is being transformed, then, then you're absolutely placing that worth and value in something else. It's in our DNA. The average person says, well, I'm not that religious. I mean, I'm not, I don't really engage in worship. It's so untrue. Everybody is born a worshiper. The world is either worshiping The world is either worshiping something other than God because they feel that that other thing is going to increase their options. It's going to increase their potential. It's going to further uh, their meaning and purpose in life. When really, you know, if you're not worshiping that other thing, then you can worship God. You're saying, I worship God. Why? Because he is the extent, the fullest extent of my potential. He's the fullest extent of my options. He's the fullest extent of my freedom. He's the fullest extent of my joy. He's the fullest extent of, of, um, of my freedom. Why do we worship? Verse 3. The psalmist says, For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. He's acknowledging that there are other gods. But the Lord is the great king above those gods. In ancient times, we lived in a polytheistic society, which meant that in your home, you had idols that were made of wood or stone or brick or gold or silver. And you worshipped. Each of those idols pointed to a type of god. It was the god of commerce. It was the god of fertility. It was the god of good weather because the god of the harvest. We've traded in those today. I mean, when we say that we have idols, we still have idols, but we've traded in the wood. We've traded in the, the stone carvings. We've traded in the gold and the silver. And we, now we've worshipped money and sex our careers, our families. It could be those kind of pursuits. It could be family and duty and loyalty, our principles, our causes. Those things have been replaced. Those things have replaced the idols that the ancient polytheistic society used to serve. And the scripture is saying here that he, God is the great king above all those gods. You place your, in other words, if you place your worth and your value in those things, you know, just like a stone carving, they are voiceless. You will work to serve, to provide charity, to provide, to do all those things to serve so that those idols can serve you. But the psalmist says, don't do that. Those things will lead you life into a corrosive state. It's going to, you're going to work restlessly, tirelessly onto the ground to serve those gods. Only God is the great king above all these gods. 
He's the only one worth that, that really could be the ultimate sense of worth, that could give you that ultimate sense of worth. Verse 3 says, The very essence of worship is to recognize that we are worshiping some lord or some kind of king. We are worshiping something. He's calling us to the great God. The verse tells us, you know, this, this passage is telling us, you know, it doesn't mean that we lop off, you know, that the application then is to get rid of our wealth, to get rid of our families, to get rid of our sense of duty. He's absolutely not saying that. He's like, yeah, you can do that. But we need to transfer the weight that we place on those things into that which will never die and never disappoint and never fail and always be gracious. Other gods, other masters, other lords, they say, you have to obey and serve me. And so you're going to work, and you will feel successful at times, and it's going to make you feel good. Or you're going to feel like a failure sometimes, and it's going to make you feel bad. And when you feel, how great is that failure? How bad do we often feel? But the psalmist is able to reflect on the beauty of who God is. Because he says, we are his sheep. We are under his care. He always oversees. The Psalms point to a God who never sleeps. He never slumbers. He always trusts. He always cares. He always loves. His love is long-suffering. And so that is the reason why we can place our stock. That is the reason why we can take inventory of everything that God is, everything that he is, all that he's done. How many of us can do that? If you think it's your worth, I mean, your God, your functional God, I mean, how do you know that you're worshiping something other than God? I mean, we, we all sit at church. But right now, there's a battle going on in our hearts to worship something other than God. How do you know? How do you know that you, don't, that you have idols in your life? When you tell yourself, if I have that thing in my life, then I'll be complete. It could be a career. It could be a position. It could be a certain salary figure. The state of your children, you know, having perfect kids. If I just have perfect kids in my life, then I'll be happy. Then I'll feel good about myself. If you, if you say, if I can just attain to that number, that salary figure, then I'll feel like I've arrived. That thing is your idol. And what this passage is really saying is that that's the thing that's going to control you. That's the thing that's going to master you. That's the thing that's going to lord over you. And that which lords over you is the thing that you're going to try to find utter satisfaction in because you want their approval. You want that thing's approval. So if you fail the devastation, it's going to corrode your soul. It's going to make you compare yourself with other people. It's going to make you compare your children with other people's children. It's going to make you compare your parents with other people's parents. It's going to make you compare your job to other people's jobs. And it will be corrosive, not just to you, but the community around you. In verse 3, verses 6 to 7, it teaches that we are to worship the Lord our God because he is the great king above all gods. He is our maker. We are the flock under his care. In other words, what that means is that God knows exactly how destructive our idols can be in our lives. We are the flock under his care. We are under his care. He sees us. He knows the idols that are driving us. He knows the things, the corrosive factors in our lives, and yet he cares, and yet he loves. 
He knows the power that these things have over our lives, the way it makes us think, the way it makes us feel, the way it coerces us to believe certain truths that aren't true. These are false promises. Worship is recognizing. You know, why do we need to worship? It's because we need to recognize that we've already ascribed our, wor- our, our ultimate value you know, to the point where, to the extent that we've placed our sense of worth in those things. To worship is to say that I'm now going to transfer. I'm going to reorient my heart's bent towards God. Not just because he deserves it. I mean, you know, if, you, if you've never worshipped, like I said, it engages all of you in a way that engages your whole being. All of you. When we do that, and sometimes we do that painfully, Sometimes it involves letting go. We call that repent. That's what repentance is. You know, that's when you're going to see God's love as most satisfying. And that's when you're going to see God's love as most valuable. That's when you're going to see God's love as greater than anything else in the world. And that's when you're deeply, soulfully worshiping the Lord. God doesn't need our worship to be glorified. He doesn't need our worship Why does a psalm call us to worship? We need to worship God because if we don't, then our souls are going to corrode because of the very nature of our latching on to other things. And it's going to lead us to the end. And so um, we need to reorient our desires, our hearts bend. We talked about what worship is. We talked about why we worship. How do you worship then? How does a psalmist here call us to worship? You see this in the latter four or five verses. How do you practice worship? Well, first he says, in community. Come. It's an invitation. It's a personal invitation. But he says, come, let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud. He says in verse 6, let us bow down. Verse 7, well, verse 6, he says, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Verse 7, he is our God. There's a community aspect. We are the people under his care. We are the flock under his care. We are his sheep. We are uh, in his pasture. The psalmist is calling us in community. We worship best. And actually, the only way you worship fully is in the context of community. I mean, if you think about why we have small groups, why do we have community groups? In fact, that's the reason why we call it community groups because it's only in the context of community that you will experience the fullest dimensions of who God is. Why? Because God is community. To experience the fullest extent of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we have to come in community. Why? Because each one of us here in this room bears a different, a piece, a dimension of our experience of who God is. And coming together and in worshiping together, when we congregate together in community in a way that it changes one another, shapes one another, influences one another, we are experiencing the wholeness and the fullness. What that means is not one person here by himself can experience the whole full dimensions of who God is by themselves. You need community because God is community. What that also means is if you're lonely, if you're frustrated because of a lack of community in your life, you're probably more demonstrating the character of God than at any other time in your life because God is community. It's a calling. He's calling you in. He's saying you need to seek. You need to search. You're desiring it. You need it because you're built that way. We are built in God's image, which means we are built to be in community. So how do you practice worship? We practice practice worship in community, in that context. But even if you orient your emotions, re-engage your will, 
re-engage all of you, your whole mind, in the context of community, you will not truly worship outside of the context of rest. Access to God. What do I mean by rest? In Psalm chapter 95, verses 7 to 11, the psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. That's a place of quarreling. As you did that day at Massa, that's a place of testing in the desert. He says, where your ancestors tested me. The writer is referencing Exodus 17. It's a time when the Israelites, God had redeemed the Israelites out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And he brought them, he was, they were wandering in the desert for 40 years and they had encountered places like Meribah where they had quarreled against God or they were tested in the desert wilderness at a place like Massa. And there they rebelled against God and what did they do? They started to build up idols to worship because they did not experience God's presence. They did not see the glory of God's presence. They did not see the beauty. They were not reflecting. Why? Because they were quarreling. They were hungry. They were tired. They were thirsty. And so they had turned against God. They rebelled and they became quarrelsome. And they actually, in, in turn, they actually tested God themselves. And the writer's referencing this period, and it's interesting because he says here, you, you know, he, he recounts an unfaithful generation. It juxtaposes Psalm 95 because he talks about the faithfulness and the greatness of who God is on one end. And then here he says, you are an fa- unfaithful, faithless generation. You are quarreling with God constantly. You are testing God constantly in your dissatisfaction. But when really you set up idols that you are worshiping. But it's interesting because it was a beautiful psalm up until this point, until you get to these verses. And it ends with the last several words. He says, you will never enter my rest. These people will never enter my rest. Why would the psalmist, in his beautiful song, calling his people into worship, end with such a solemn, almost discouraging statement, quoting from the Old Testament passage? And you don't understand this until the end of the Bible practically in the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 to 11, the writer of Hebrews makes sense out of Psalm 95. He writes, verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience. The psalmist is warning us here. He's saying, don't miss out. Don't miss this incredible truth. Don't miss out on the character and the beauty of who God is. He says, even after God had ushered his people into the, uh, even after Joshua had ushered God's people into the promised land, they entered into a land of rest. They're still not at rest. They're still clinging to idols. And he said, for God's people, there is a special time of rest. There is a special rest that, that, that the physical rest, the land of rest, actually points to that's reserved for God's people. In other words, because physical rest lets us rest from our physical works, then the gospel is reserved for people to rest from their spiritual works. Religion is what? Spiritual work. Religion says, you know, if you live a good life, right? Sound of music, Maria, 
somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. If you've lived a good life, then you will experience blessing. But a living, vital Christianity, a living, vital Christianity rests only in the gospel. It says that we can't rest on our own. You can't earn it. You can't gain access through your own merit. And so what it means is that it's not based on what we've earned or our record, but what Jesus has earned and Jesus' record. Another way of saying that is, is like this. All of us here are tired. Every one of us here are tired. Circumstantially tired. Physically tired. Spiritually tired. Emotionally tired. And we're tired, to, we're tired of trying to fulfill our own expectations in life experience our own dreams. We're tired of, of fulfilling other people's expectations in life and their dreams. Jesus comes and says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And then he says, you will find rest for your souls. That's what he says. Now, here in this passage, the psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, What's the psalmist pointing to? Whose voice? The sea is his. In the New Testament, Jesus walking on water. He's calming the storm. He says that our creator, our maker, John chapter 1, it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The heavens and the earth were created with the word, and the word was God. The sea is his, for he made it. The dry land, he's the maker of it. He's talking about Jesus, the rock of our salvation. He's talking about Jesus, the savior of our souls, who says, come, he invites us into his rest. Now, then why do we sing? How can you freely, freely worship? Why do we sing? Why does the psalmist call us, if you reflect on this, it's going to Break you out of the song. Why do we shout aloud? It's, he says it's because we have access. The invitation is through centuries we have access. We are assured of access to the Father through his Son. In Matthew chapter 7, this is the tail end of what has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's a series of teachings by Jesus. And as we round out the tail end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus kind of shares a very cryptic teaching that he later unpacks. He says in chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Look what's happening here. Jesus says, one day, people will come to me. Many people will come to me. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? They're confessing. They're reasoning with God with their mind. They're saying, did we not do these things? Let me reason with you. They're saying, Lord, Lord. They're engaging their emotions. Whenever you see the doublet there, there is an engagement of your emotions. You know, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Anytime you see that in the Bible, there's an intense emotional engagement there. And what he's saying is, these people are coming to me emotionally, submitting their emotions. They're coming to me with their reasoning and their thinking, their understanding. And what do they say? Did we not do all these things? They've come to me saying, we've bowed down our wills before you. 
And Jesus' response is, get away from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Why do we, why are we able to sing for joy? Why are we able to come into God's presence and act with thanksgiving? Why are we able to come in and say, I am I'm shouting aloud to the rock of our salvation? It's because we're known. Jesus says, go away, you evildoers. I never knew you. I never knew you. You are not known. The psalmist, it comes back to Psalm 95. Psalm 95, he says, we are his sheep. We are his people. We are his. This great God that I can take inventory of doing and and describing to you all the measure of his worth, at least to the extent that my mind can fathom. Actually, we are under his care. He actually cares. He actually loves. The God of the seas, the creator of the universe, is personal with us. He has chosen to reason with us. He's crying out. He weeps for Jerusalem, and he says he's in, involved in intense emotional engagement. He has become emotionally engaged with his people. He calls out to Lazarus, Lazarus, and before he brings him back to life, what does he do? He weeps. He has bowed down his will, sacrificed his place in heaven to become finite, a finite being, to incarnate, to reach his people to reason with his people. And on the cross, what do you see? I mean, when you look at the cross, what do you see? The wrath of God poured out on Christ. Jesus is working on the cross. Jesus is groaning on the cross. Jesus is crying out. He's struggling just to even take a breath. If you know anything about crucifixion, you're struggling just to take a breath. And you're pressing on the very things that are holding you up. And it's causing extreme pain. And yet, and he's working. He worked all the way to the cross. He's working on the cross. And when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? My joy has been emptied. The blood is pouring out. But what he's saying is my joy is pouring out. The reason why we get, we get access is because Jesus says, you have forsaken me. God has forsaken me. The one who has had perfect access to God. Who is Jesus? Jesus, the one person who has truly, freely, utterly, 100%, totally worshipped the Father from beginning, from birth to death. And yet what he's saying on the cross is, I am forsaken. Go get away from me. I've become the evildoer. God does not know me any longer. I am no longer the sheep in his pasture. I am no longer a flock under his care. I have been forsaken as a result. The very, my worship, the very person that I worship has left me and now my soul, my heart, everything is corroded. And do you know that even though he's saying that, even though he's crying out in that way, he's actually reciting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Later on in the psalm, as you read Psalm 22, it, it, it actually, if you translate from the Hebrew, if you translate the words, later on you see, I am thirsty. Later on you see the amazing, famous words, it is finished. When Jesus says, it is finished, what is he doing? It's an act of worship. He's literally worshiping, even though he's been forsaken. For his people, he's still down to the end. He worships perfectly. We cannot worship perfectly. Jesus on the cross, he's working so that we can enter into rest. 
That's the end of work. And he seals it. Why? Because down to the death, he says, it is finished. When he says it is finished, that's transactional language. What he's saying is the debt has been paid. But really what he's saying is, it's over. The work is done. My people will never have to work to earn God's favor ever again. My people will never have to labor to try to gain access on their own ever again. The veil has been torn. The holy temple curtain has now torn, and it was torn from top to bottom. That's God reaching from the top and saying the work is over and tearing it so that now we, as priests, can enter in. The work is over. Do you know that the reason why we are constantly working is because in, spiritually, our DNA is telling us you have to find worth in something. You have to find your sense of worth in something that you have to own. You have to arrive. You know why? We're still trying to tear the curtain. We're still trying to gain access. And the way we try to gain access through the curtain is what? Through our works. If I can just get this salary, then I'll feel good about myself. If I can raise these kind of kids, then I'll feel good about myself. If I have this kind of career, then I can say, I've arrived. I will feel good about myself. He says, this is the end of our work. Harold Abrams, Chariots of Fire, says what? He's on the starting block. He leans over, and what does he say? At this point, I see four feet wide, 100 meters long. I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. This is the end of our work. When you do all these things that the psalmist is reflecting and recounting and be drawn in community context and reflect on the beauty that is God and the glory that is God, and if you let that and if you do that in a way that overwhelms your soul, you're, in essence, relinquishing and releasing your grip on those other areas, those other gods in your life, get less. It starts to change your being. It starts to transform your will. And when your will has been transformed, you become free. You feel freer. The burden. I mean, Jesus says, you are weary and heavy laden. Come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Why? Because he has taken on your burden. And you receive his blessing. It's a very light burden. That's what it means to rest. It engages your will, it engages your emotions, it engages your mind in the context of community with utter peace and rest. When you leave this place this week, you know what you're doing? You're you're walking right back into the very idols that can corrode your soul. Will you, moment by moment, day by day, Reflect on the beauty that is God, not just his character, not just the character of Christ, but the work of Christ. And let that overwhelm you so you can see yourself as the flock under his care, knowing that your provision is God's provision for you and that you don't have to keep using your job, using your children, using your spouse, using approval from other people as a way of getting in. It makes you enjoy those things way better. You will enjoy your job. You will enjoy your salary, your children, the people you love so much more because there's no agenda tied to it. Will you do that this week with me? Let's pray.